chapter 2, as we continue our study there, decided to skip preaching the first part of John 2, since we uh, heard that in a sermon in the past year. But I'm going to uh, read that, the opening 12 verses, and then we'll take as our sermon text this morning, verse 13 through verse 22, which is the temple cleansing But the opening section is at Jesus at the wedding in Cana, turning the water into wine. So reading John 2, beginning at verse 1. John 2, verse 1, the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. God's holy word, which stands firm forever. Let's bow in prayer and ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful to come before you and to gather around your word. Thank you, Lord, for the inspired word, the God-breathed scriptures, and for the faithful record of our Lord Jesus, that we may meet him in the pages of truth. Visit us by your Holy Spirit, that we may have our eyes open to the glories of our Savior, our hearts humbled before him, and our hearts filled with his grace. God, we pray you'd work good things in us 
through your gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray it for your glory. Amen. The Congregation of Christ, this morning we get to think about worship. God, in fact, summons us to think about worship. Sometimes we rather take it for granted. We're rather nonchalant about our worship. Maybe we casually stroll into church and we we assume that we can do this. Worship is not a, a big deal. We can do this. Or, or, or maybe we think sometimes it doesn't matter what we do in worship. God should be pleased just that we're here. You know, many people are sleeping in this morning or going about their business. We've come here, so let's not get too worked up about the details. Whatever we do, God should be pleased with it. Or other times we may perhaps come into worship and we, we remain quite attached to our sin. And we tell ourselves that God doesn't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't care. In those and other ways, we've forgotten who God is, right? We've forgotten He is the holy God, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. In a couple chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus will be speaking to the Samaritan woman, and He will say that the hour is coming and now is... When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. Father seeks such worshipers to worship Him. Where will the Father find such worshipers? There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who worships God rightly in themselves. And yet God seeks holy worshipers. How far will God go to get such worshipers? Well, the answer of the gospel is shocking, right? God will go so far as to send his beloved down from heaven to earth to take up our nature, to suffer the curse in our place, to remove our guilt, to restore us to God, to fill us with the holy, holy, holy spirit, and to make us a new creation for God. God is absolutely devoted to getting himself true worship. And that's the reason, that is the reason that Jesus Christ has come. In the first part of John 2, Christ begins his ministry by revealing that he is the wine. He is the gladness. He is the life. The party has run out of wine. Life on earth has no joy. And the purification... Pots, the Old Testament rituals cannot give life and joy, but Jesus does. And now, John moves on here to show us that this Christ who would give to us life and joy has not come ultimately for us, but for the Father. To bring worship to the Father. Jesus Christ has come to make worshipers to secure holy worship for his Father. Christ will come into the temple and he will demonstrate that. He's the son of the Father's house and he executes now a work. He shows us his office. But that authority is challenged. And Christ gets into conflict with the religious leaders. But in the end, Christ proclaims that he will win the victory and he will be raised from the dead. So let's look at those items this morning. First of all, the office that Christ performs The office that Christ performs. Secondly, the conflict that Christ provokes. The conflict that Christ provokes. And then the victory that Christ prophesies. 
Well, in John 2, now Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. This is not the first time he's done this, right? He, he grew up in a family that was apparently faithful in going to the feast because the, all the males of Israel were required to go three times a year to Jerusalem for the annual feast, including the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. So he's been there before. And with all the pilgrim peoples from all over the land, they travel up to the capital city, up to the temple city where the Lord is to be worshipped. And this Passover feast was a time to remember what? Well, the boys and girls remember that this feast has a name that's very provocative. It reminds us of the angel of death that passed over God's people in Egypt when it went to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. As they smeared blood on their doorposts, they were safe beneath that blood, and the angel of death did not stop to visit their homes. The Passover also recalled their time in slavery, when under the thumb of Pharaoh, they could not go worship God. They were not permitted to go worship the Lord. But then God brought them out so they could worship the Lord. He brought them through the wilderness. He gave them a tabernacle where he, he caused his glory to shine. And then he brought them in the land of promise and exchanged the tabernacle tent for a permanent dwelling, the temple. And he filled it with his glory where his people could come to meet with him. That temple was at the heart of the life of God's people because that temple symbolized life with God. God dwells among us. From the temple, God blesses us. At the temple, we hear God's voice. That temple symbolized life with God. In the beginning of time at the Garden of Eden, there was no temple, right? The whole garden was a temple. The whole creation was a temple. God and his glory was everywhere with his people. Adam and Eve were his temple. He dwelt in them. But due to our sin and rebellion, God's presence withdrew. Heaven and earth fractured. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. But when God gave the tabernacle and then the temple, God gave the promise. My glory will dwell with you again. And so the temple was to be honored as the place where God allowed sinners to draw near, to bring sacrifices of, of atonement and sacrifices of thanksgiving, to bring praise to God, to come and petition God, to come and hear God's word, to have the priest lift up hands and bless them. But as Jesus comes into the temple, what does he find? Verse 14. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And what does Jesus do? He makes a, a, a whip of cords and he drives them out, drives them out. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Their coins, you can imagine, flying everywhere. And he says to those with doves, get these out of here. How dare you make my father's house a house of business and merchandise? What a display of zeal for God's honor. Now you have to understand that what they were doing in the temple, or what they weren't doing in the temple maybe, they weren't using the temple for a farm show. They had not commandeered the temple property for the Oregon State Fair or something. What they were doing was, was providing animals for sacrifice. That's why they were selling oxen and sheep, so that you could buy one for sacrifice. And that was a, a nice service, because if you came from a long ways away and you didn't want to lead your little lamb all the way, it was good. You could just bring money and buy one when you got there, an unblemished one. And when you came to pay the temple tax, you couldn't pay in any currency. There was a specific currency in which you had to pay. It was nice to have money changers to give you the right coinage. 
So why is Jesus so upset if they were rendering a service? Because the service they were rendering did not need to take place in the temple. The temple was a place set aside for worship. It was to be filled with prayers and not the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of lambs. It used to be a place of reverence, a place of honor, a place where God was central and not human interactions. Scholars tell us that the animal stalls of merchants used to be set up across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olive Slopes. But now somehow it had moved into the temple and presumably into the outer courts of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, a big area. And that the priests allowed this to go on suggests a low spirituality. In fact, it suggests that they've given way to a religion of convenience, a religion of confusion, and a religion of callousness. A religion of convenience, because why walk all the way over to the slopes of the Mount of Olives? Why not just have the sacrifices here? Make worship easy. Our hearts often make idols out of comfort and ease. There's such a thing as an appropriately user-friendly church and the way of making it accessible. But there's also an idolatrous user-friendly church which says, let there be no burdens upon the worshipers. Our hearts are prone to use religion for our own purposes. Here God's house is being made to use a buck, to make a little money. We have our own ways, don't we, of commandeering God's church for our own purposes. But secondly, this was a religion of confusion. God had gone to great lengths in the Old Testament to separate, to distinguish, because that's what holiness is. It's it's separation. So God gave his people all kinds of laws, as you know, about what you could eat and not eat, about clothing you could wear and not wear, about who you could be near and not be near, about who could come into worship and who wasn't clean to come into worship. And God was teaching distinction, distinction, distinction. I am holy. You, by nature, are sinful. But now they trample those bars of separation here. They've encroached on the holy place. And they've confused themselves, thinking that all God cares about is this outward formality. If we get the animal and bring the animal, we've done it all. And God says, no, I want your hearts. But it was also a religion of callousness, a religion without compassion. If indeed where they were setting up shop was in the court of the Gentiles... Then they had taken over the area, the one area where Gentiles could come. They couldn't come further to enter in deeper into the temple precincts. To take over that space for convenience was a lack of love towards the world. Israel was to be a light to the world and to plead with God the nations would come. And if they saw this big court of the Gentiles with so much open space, it wasn't to be a temptation to them. Hey, we got open space, let's set up the shops there. It was to be a burden upon their hearts. God, fill these precincts with the world. Bring the nations. Jesus Christ enters into the temple, Son of God in human flesh. He sees what they've done and he takes action. Now this may have been done for a long time, what was going on there. Jesus may have come to the temple before and seen all of this. But now he comes as the office bearer. He's begun his public ministry. And now he must do something about it. And he goes to work with great jealousy for the Lord God. He comes to sweep the temple clean. What a scene this must have been. 
Jesus with determination, maybe find some cords that maybe animals had been brought there on or wood had been bundled with, and he begins to knot them and braid them and turn it into a whip. This is not an out-of-control rage or fury, but it is a zealous determination. And then having made his whip, he goes to work, swinging that whip to drive the cattle out, to drive the sheep out, to drive out those who would misuse God's house. What a passion for God. He's waited with love for God. He's waited for the church and for the salvation of the world. Turns upside down tables. Insists that people leave with their doves. What have you done to my father's house, he says. Jesus, he claims for himself an authority and a position, doesn't he? He's no stranger here. He's not some visitor. This is my father's house. Sent by the father. He comes with legitimate authority and power to purify. There's some who who think that the gospel writer John has taken a story that happens much later in Christ's ministry because in the other gospels, you know, the temple cleansing is found at the end of Christ's ministry. And they think that John has taken that story and for his purposes inserted it earlier. I don't find that very convincing. John is very specific here in terms of what time it is, in terms of the chronology, in terms of the various Passovers he's going to point to. I think it's better understood that there are two temple cleansings in the ministry of Jesus. His ministry begins with one, his ministry ends with one. Christ is making clear that he is jealous for God's glory because this temple stands at the meaning of history, the center of history, a God who comes to restore fellowship with his people and to purify people for worship. And if we understand this morning, if we see this glory of Christ claiming this office for himself to purify, then we know this morning, don't we, brothers and sisters, that he's not indifferent to us and to our worship. In fact, you can read in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and and you can realize that Christ still walks among his lampstands, as he says. He's very observant about what goes on in every congregation. Christ this morning is not the least bit unaware of what happens at Emmanuel's Reformed Church. He knows our worship. Very familiar with it. When our mouths do not open to sing his praise, he knows it. When our minds wander, he knows it. When our hearts are cold, he's aware of it. When we draw near with lips, but our hearts are far from him, he's not oblivious. Is ours a religion of convenience? It's a good question, right? We can Ask, in what ways has our worship degenerated into a religion of convenience? Where our primary concern is rather to make it easy for ourselves. Rather than sacrifice and sorrow for sin, can it be a little lighter, please? Rather than a day set apart to the Lord, can you shrink it down a little bit, please? Are we inventive and creative to make it easy for ourselves? Do we idolize comfort and ease? Do we seize the space that belongs to God for 
our own desires, our own praise? How about this one? Do we hijack the time and affection of God's people for ourselves? Who of us is not guilty of that? To be more concerned that people like me and show affection for me than I am about whether they love God and give their affections to him. Do we not rob God of what belongs to him for ourselves? Is ours a religion not just of convenience but of confusion where we blur the lines between holy and unholy, between what's right and wrong? Do we live our lives without the distinctions? We blur the line in our business ethics, perhaps, or in our sexual ethics. That we refuse to distinguish between what's holy and unholy. Is ours a religion of confusion, thinking that God is satisfied with outward ceremony, while inwardly our hearts have no gratitude towards him? And finally, is our religion not just a religion of convenience and confusion, but is a religion of callousness and lack of compassion for the world? When we see empty seats in our building, does it rouse our hearts to pray, Lord, fill these seats for the glory of your name? Bring our neighbors. Bring our coworkers, bring our relatives, fill these seats with worshipers for the glory of your name. The Jews apparently are quite satisfied. We don't need any Gentiles. They don't really look like us. They don't really talk like us. Kind of like it the way it is. Do we have hearts of compassion towards those who live in darkness under the wrath of God? Do we find ways to make church comfortable for us while others have no way to enter in? Do we love our circles of friendship and they are very tight circles? Nobody can get in there. Do we love our ways of doing things and Make it inaccessible to others. You know, every family is going to have inside jokes, right? Every family is going to have ways and traditions of doing it. Every family is going to have shared experiences. All that's wonderful, right? right? If the family has none of those things, they haven't lived together. But the question is, does the family have doors that open outward to invite people in and to make them feel included, right? Do we greet those? Who are visitors, and do we become friends of those who come into the church? Do we communicate well? It's a good question for us as elders and deacons, but for all of our committees, if we're going to do something at church or have an event, do we put enough information in the bulletin that the person who doesn't know how we've always done it can feel comfortable and find a way to come into it? Or is it all insider information? See, do we have a compassion for the world around us? Do we want to see the world come to know the Lord Jesus? Whose house is the church? Whose glory is at stake? Whose honor matters most? Well, the good news in the midst of all of our failures is that Christ has come to purify you and me, and we need him, don't we? What a sight that the Lord of glory has come to purify us. 
The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and Malachi records these words of the Lord, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver so that they may offer to the Lord an offering and righteousness. Christ has come to his temple. The Lord has appeared to purify worshipers, to set us free from slavery to sin and bring us into the joy of holy worship. But he's not always well received, is he? That's the second thing we see this morning, is that that Christ's coming to the temple, to his father's house with zeal, provokes conflict. When Jesus takes to himself the authority, then of course you can imagine that the temple authorities are going to come running and ask for his credentials. Man, you're, you're doing all this, driving out animals, turning over tables, let's see your badge. And you know what? They're right to do that. All right, God set up authority structures. If things go crazy in church this morning, we... We sure hope the elders will be concerned about it. It was right for the Levites and priests to guard the temple. But there was something wrong with how they were guarding it. When they come to Jesus, verse 18, the Jews, meaning the leaders, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Well, first of all, it's kind of a pretended zeal, isn't it? I mean, if they're really so zealous, why is there a merchandise mart inside of God's temple? They've been willing participants. They've been neglecting their job. Secondly, why do they need a sign? Shouldn't their first question be, is what this man's saying true? That God's house should not be a house of business and commerce. Is it true? Is that just? Is that right? That should be their first question. But thirdly, as will become clear throughout the gospel account, their hearts are more set on protecting themselves and their perverted religion than on protecting God's honor. In fact, in the end, they will deliver Jesus up for envy to murder him. When the disciples see all that Jesus does, we read in verse 17, Then his disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now, if you go to the context that comes from psalm 69 a psalm of david if you go and read that psalm then the context is very enlightening because in psalm 69 the problem is that david cares about the holiness of god and for caring about god's holiness he has all kinds of enemies that are assaulting him he says in psalm 69 for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. He's passionate for God's glory. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's an interesting phrase. It, it doesn't, I don't think, refer just to some, shall we call it, internal combustion. That he's, that he's consumed emotionally with passion for God's glory. But in, in the context of Psalm 69, it suggests that he's being eaten up by his enemies who want to devour him. Psalm 69, verse 4, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Verse 15, Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. They want to eat him up. So Jesus here, as his disciples understand, 
has zeal for the Lord, but it brings him into conflict with the enemies. Now, why should that be the case? Why, when the Lord comes to his temple to purify worshipers, should it arouse animosity and incite anger? Well, the answer is obvious, right? Because we like our man-made religion. We like the adjustments we've made. Jesus Jesus has stepped into conflict, hasn't he? Do you like conflict? I hear lots of people say, well, you know, he just doesn't like conflict. In fact, I remember early on in the, the ministry for me that one of the men nominated for elders, he came to me and said, you know, I just, I really don't like conflict. Which I wasn't quite sure what to say. Well, good. You shouldn't like conflict. If you like conflict, then you're, you're not following the ways of the peacemaker, are you? Or was he saying, I am unwilling to bear conflict when it's necessary? Was Jesus willing to bear conflict? Oh, yeah. When necessary, the peacemaker would bear conflict. He would be hated. He'd be insulted. He'd be mocked. He'd be beaten. He would allow himself to be killed. If we are united to our Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit then lives in us, He makes us willing participants in a great conflict, doesn't he? It's actually a conflict that begins in our own hearts. Because as soon as you and I come into worship before a holy God, our sinful nature rises up and says, No, don't bow down. You're important. As soon as the word calls us to repent of our sins and confess, our sinful nature says, No, you're a good person. And we have this internal conflict. And then we have all the conflicts of the evil one against us and the world against us. But where we see a willingness to bear the conflict and to engage, then we see Christ living in us, the one who is consumed with his Father's glory. And that should make us sing for joy. Oh Lord, I will enter into conflict. I will bear reproach for your name's sake. Oh, Lord, let zeal for your house consume me. And all of that in the hope that the victory is certain. Notice that finally this morning, the victory that Christ prophesies. The Jews say in verse 18, what sign? Give us a sign to show us that you have authority to do this. And Jesus answered, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they think that's ridiculous, right? That's absurd. 46 years it's taken to build this temple. Herod's been remodeling remodeling the temple for 46 years, and you're going to build it up in three days? It would be quite a sign, wouldn't it? Somebody that could rebuild the temple in three days is somebody that probably has authority in the temple. But John tells us he was talking about his body, the temple of his body. And therefore... When he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus speaks to to religious leaders who are in the process of destroying the temple. They are destroying the physical temple by their disobedience, and in fact, less than 40 years after this event, the temple is dismantled by the Romans, their enemies, burned down, destroyed, God's judgment upon them. 
And even today, I mean, the Temple Mount today is not owned by Jews. It's not owned by Christians. Who dominates the Temple Mount today? Muslims with the Dome of the Rock. And what what are we to do? Are we to pray and plead that the Dome of the Rock might be removed and to pray that a temple will be built there so Jesus can come back? Absolutely not. Our hope is not in a physical temple to be built in Jerusalem. Jesus himself is the temple. That's the, that's the word of the New Testament. All that the temple symbolized, all that it promised, all that it was, the glory of God dwelling with his people has now come, right? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was made and the Shekinah glory cloud came and filled it up so that the men couldn't even enter it. Then the temple was built and the glory of God filled it up. But now the glory of God himself, Jesus, has come down from heaven. The Son of God. That God might dwell among men. Jesus has brought the final sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is the ultimate temple, the dwelling place of God and the meeting place between God and men. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was torn. The way into the Holy of Holies is open. Jesus himself replaces the existing temple. And he is God with us. And he is the only way to the Father through his blood through his sacrifice, through his mediation. They're going to destroy the temple of his body, aren't they? They're going to nail him to a cross. They're going to kill him. But he's going to rise from the dead. Death will not hold him because he will have paid the full penalty. And therefore death has no claim on him. And he will rise triumphant to be the everlasting mediator of his people. And so we have comfort this morning, brothers and sisters, that our false worship has been atoned for. All of our careless worship, all of our cold worship has been atoned for by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And we who could never build a tower high enough to reach to God have now seen God come to us in his beloved Son and say, I will dwell with you, I show myself to you, I give you my glory, I give you my blessing. Christ guarantees a day when we'll perfectly love our God and be utterly delighted with the splendor and beauty of his holiness. In fact, Psalm 69, which talks all about the zeal of the Lord consuming David and therefore of Christ and all that he suffers, doesn't end on a pessimistic note. Psalm 69 ends this way. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that move in them, for God will save Zion and those who love his name shall dwell in it. It was the hope that God's people sang in the Old Testament. And now we see in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, glimpses of worship in perfection. Where purified souls worship God in the splendor of God's holiness with great joy and delight. So this morning we give thanks that our Savior did not leave us to ourselves, but he came to purify us. With zeal for God's glory, he purchased us. He remade us. He opened the doors to us. And he honored his father by guaranteeing that God will have worship. God will have holy worship.
If the worship of God is the central concern of Jesus Christ, then what should be the concern of Christ's people? Lord Jesus, purify us. Remove our sin. Open our eyes to the glory. Come and let us sing your praise. God will have holy worship for all of eternity because all those Christ came to save will be gathered. and They'll be entirely sanctified and glorified. and They'll be with God forever. And they will see the beauty of God's holiness. Nothing more delightful, nothing more satisfying, nothing more worthy of our attention and interest. God will be worshipped. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior. We're thankful for the word of truth, and we look forward, Lord, to receiving the Lord's Supper and to that divine assurance that you give us by visible signs and seals that Christ has fully satisfied for our sins, that the dwelling of God with men is real. Oh, Father, be glorified in us and make us true worshipers for Jesus' sake. Amen.